know, as I was preparing for this week's sermon, I kept reading the passage over and over again, and uh, I just kept being reminded of how powerful language is and how powerful words can be. Have you ever noticed how a single word or a phrase can evoke the, like, the strongest of response in a person? Um, you know, I've, I've seen this starting young with my kids. I remember when my oldest son, Elijah, was, he was two, I think, and he figured out what the word playground was. And so if, if Amy or I said the word playground, even if we were just saying, hey, do you think maybe later today we could take Elijah to the playground, he would hear that. And like his emotions would go through the roof. He's excited. He'd say it in his little two-year-old voice, peg out, peg out, peg out, like wanted to go to the playground so badly. And then if we weren't able to go, it would send him the opposite direction, like straight down into the pits. He'd be so frustrated and disappointed. And we learned that we had to be careful how we use that word because it would elicit this strong response in him. So we started saying PG instead of playground every time we wanted to make plans about what we were gonna do. And you know, sometimes words just have that effect on us. And as I was reading the text this week, I, I just kept coming across certain phrases and certain words that I know, that I know are going to elicit a strong response in a lot of us. You know, the, the reality is we're gonna be looking at a couple passages that, that unfortunately have been misused and abused for the sake of grabbing power or control, all to the detriment of Christ. Um, this, is, this has happened so much, and we're gonna read these texts, and it is so important that we understand the posture with which we come to texts like the ones we're looking at today. It, our posture towards each other matters. You know, it's important for you to know that there are people sitting on the row beside you or in front of you or behind you that some of the words that we read are going to to, to trigger painful memories or places where they've been hurt or, 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 or lots of confusion. There, there are, it's important our posture towards one another, but I, I also ask for your posture towards me. You know, like I ask, you know, I'm, I'm an imperfect dude. I'm just a guy that, that by the grace of Jesus gets to stand up and walk through this text with us as a Christian family. And um, I would ask for your grace. I'm gonna approach this as humbly and as authentically as I know how to do it and to treat it with the respect and honor that it deserves as the word of God. And I just ask for your grace in that. I think it's important that we remember the words that we read just a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter four, verse two, Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, hey, you must seek to maintain the unity of the spirit. He says, be completely humble be completely gentle. And so that's my invitation and my encouragement for us this morning is that we as the body of Jesus would be completely humble and completely gentle as we walk through a text that has potential to spur and trigger some painful thoughts or emotions in us as we read. Before we jump in, it's important to remember, I know I do this every week that I get up here, but I just think it's so crucial that we understand this that what we're reading here is not just a random verse, but it is found in the context of a broader letter. And this is so important because the places that these verses have been misused and abused, they've usually been pulled out of the way that they were meant to be taken and used by themselves alone. So remember, this is a letter written by a real guy named Paul to a real group of Christians in first century in the city called Ephesus in modern day Turkey. And Remember, he spent three chapters just affirming these believers of their identity. You've been saved. You've been adopted into the family of God. You are heirs with Christ, co-heirs of the kingdom. You've been seated on high. You are one body, one family. And then in chapter four, he starts giving them these instructions. 
And all the instructions that we've looked at so far have had to do with our life together as the family of Jesus. He talks about the importance of unity within us, the followers of Jesus. He starts talking about the gifts and how we use those in our, in our context of the church family. He starts talking about how our way of thinking as a family needs to be transformed so it's not like the old way of thinking. And then last week, he starts talking to us about being filled with the Spirit, continuously being filled with the Spirit of God so that we can use our words, that we can sing words of praise for the Lord and hymns and psalms, and we can make the most of every opportunity to build up the family of Christ. So that's where we find ourselves. Paul is going to continue his thoughts on being filled with the Spirit. And we're going to look at a very long chunk of Scripture this morning, but I want to start with just one verse, because I think this one verse really captures the essence of what it is that Paul is trying to accomplish and everything else that he says and what follows. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, this is kind of the summary verse for, that everything else will flow out of. Paul says this, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think what Paul is saying, remember he said, go on being filled with the Spirit. And he says that when you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is going to guide you into submission to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Now, I want to talk about this word submit for just a minute. I think in our culture, in our society, this word submit, it, it tends to roll off of our lips almost like it's a bad word. And I think that's because we assume that in order to submit, it means that there's this lack of equality. We start to think that that, hey, if I have to submit to someone, that means that they're better than me or they think they're more powerful than me or more important than me. I think this understanding just kind of comes out of what our culture is built on. I mean, if you just think about the culture of the United States, we, we've, we've tended to put individual rights on a pedestal, right? When you think about one of the founding documents of our nation, it says very well and very appropriately that all men are created equal. And it talks about how we all have these unalienable rights to which everyone should have access to. And we have built so much of our society on this idea of unalienable rights. And so when someone comes along and says, hey, you should submit to someone else, it often feels like our rights are being threatened of being stripped away from us. You know, this word submit that Paul uses here it is not telling you that you have no rights. I think the language that helps me understand this word submit the most is a phrase that a friend of mine used with me when my wife and I were going through premarital counseling. We were talking about this very text and he started talking about what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. And he says, you know, this word submit, all it really is is a yielding of your rights. It is not a saying that you don't have rights. It is a willingness to yield those rights for the sake of another. We all understand this in the context of driving, don't we? I mean, we all, anyone who's been behind the wheel of a car and come to one of those upside down red and white triangles that says yield in the middle, we know that it's actually in our best interest to yield at that point. If you've ever tried to merge onto an interstate in Nashville, Tennessee, then you understand that sometimes it is in your best interest to yield the right of way. Because what would it look like if our city, well, we might not have to use our imaginations very much here. What would it look like if you lived in a city where nobody yielded the right of way? It could be disastrous. If everyone insisted on always having the right of way in traffic, then we know that it would be dangerous to everyone involved. And what Paul is saying about the family of Jesus, he's saying, listen, when you come together and you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit is going to lead you in yielding of your rights, lowering yourself for the sake of someone else. 
yielding your right so the other can be lifted up. Man, in a community that lives like this, in the community of Jesus that lives this way, then we start seeing that everyone is lifted up and everyone is looked after because nobody is thinking of themselves, but they are trying to lift up everyone else. And this is a picture of the beautiful family of Jesus that we're invited into. Paul says it another way in Philippians chapter two, verse three, he says it this way. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but rather in humility, value others more than yourself. When we come into the family of Jesus, our life ceases to orbit around myself and my rights. And instead, my life begins to orbit around Jesus Christ, and it seeks to tend to the needs of others over and above my own. And this is why Paul says, hey, be filled with the Spirit and submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Yield your rights to one another. So this is kind of the, the main verse that captures everything else that Paul is going to say that flows out of it. And so let's go ahead and read the rest of the text. We're going to read a big chunk of text, okay? We're going to read all the way through to chapter 6, verse 9. So stay with me, follow along. And I just want to name if there's going to be some phrases and some words in here that might trigger a strong response in you. And I just want to encourage you, like, stay with us. Stay with me as we walk. We're going to come back and talk through everything that Paul is saying uh, to us here. So let's start in verse 21. Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, which is his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord out of Ephesians 5 and 6. And so there's so much going on in this text. There's so many things that are hard for us to try to understand and wade through, and it seems so confusing at times. And I think 
If we're going to understand Paul's heart in this passage, then we're going to have to first try to like attempt to enter into the mind of a first century Christian living in a Greco-Roman culture. One of the things we have to understand about Roman civilization and the Greco-Roman mindset was that order and structure were of the utmost of importance. You see, the Roman Empire had an empire to maintain, and there were many philosophers and, and moral thinkers of the day that thought through what is it that makes a state or a nation or an empire work. And they would talk about these at length, and they would write about them at length. And fortunately, we have some of these writings so that we can actually see how they thought about culture and civilization. And you see, what the philosophers of the day thought, they understood the household or the family, what the Greek word was oikos, it was this, this place that they considered to be the most basic building block of society. And so I want you to think about our human bodies. We understand that uh, our cells, our cells are the building block of our body. And we understand that if something goes wrong at the cellular level biologically with us, then that is gonna have devastating implications for the rest of our body. And this was the way that philosophers thought about life as an empire or a nation. They said, hey, listen, the basic building block is the household, and if something goes wrong at the household, that is gonna have far-reaching implications for the rest of the empire. And so it was in their best interest to think through how the household should be structured and how it should be governed and how it should be run. One such philosopher, somebody that we've probably all heard of, was this man named Aristotle. Aristotle wrote at length about how he thought societies should be structured. In one work called Politics, this is what he says. This is a quote from Aristotle. He says, every state is composed of households. And the primary and smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. Now, I hope those three sets of relationships sound familiar to you. It's the very relationships that Paul is speaking into here. You see, it was ubiquitous in the Roman world that they understood that, hey, if we're going to make our, our empire work, then we've got to get the household down. And they boiled the household down into these three primary relationships, that of marriage, that of parenting, and that of the master and his slave. And they would write at length about how these relationships should be maintained and ordered. In fact, they developed what they called the household codes, and these are the way that a household should be run. You know, I think the reason Paul goes from addressing life in the broader body of Christians to suddenly talking about these seemingly arbitrary relationships is that he is speaking into their culture in a way that they can understand it. He says, listen, this way of living where you radically submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus, it doesn't just begin and end when you come together as the church family. This isn't about Sunday mornings and what you do when you gather to worship. He says, no, this radical kind of submission is going to seep down into the smallest cracks and crevices of your everyday life. Paul takes this idea of submission from just a random idea, and he brings it down all the way to the ground for his first century readers. He says, let me tell you how this works itself out in the midst of the household code that you find yourself trying to live under. And I think one of the genius things that Paul was doing here was he was teaching these first century Christians how they can exist and live in an oppressive system, an empire, and how they can bring change about to an oppressive empire just like Jesus did. Now you may remember Jesus also lived underneath the authority of the Roman Empire. And many of his followers really wanted him to use might and power and control to try to overthrow the Roman Empire to usher in the kingdom of God. 
And if you know the story of Jesus, then you know this is not the way he went about it. Instead, he humbled himself. He humbled himself even to death on a cross, that he died the most humiliating death that one could die in the Roman Empire. You see, this is what Jesus taught about the way the kingdom of God expands. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, hey, listen, the kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast. Yeast is what makes dough rise so that it can be baked as bread. And Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of God is like this tiny little bit of yeast. It takes very little bit of yeast sprinkled into dough. It can be worked. He says three huge lumps of dough can pretty soon be leavened with one small piece of yeast. And this is the way the kingdom of God expands. You see, when Christianity, when Paul was writing this, Christianity was this tiny burgeoning movement in the middle of a massive and oppressive empire. And he was saying, hey, listen, the way that Christianity is going to overturn this empire is by injecting the radical and subversive love of Jesus into the very structure that holds the empire together. It's amazing. And so what Jesus begins to write using this household code is unbelievably subversive to the culture of the time. So how is what he says subversive? Well, let's, let's have a look at it. You know, I, I think the first thing that we see where Paul is radically different than his contemporaries are the people that he addresses. So there's these three relationships, marriage, parenting, slaves and masters. Look at your text. Who does Paul address first in each one of those? When he gets to marriage, he addresses the wife first. When he gets to parenting, he addresses the children first. When he gets to slaves and masters, he addresses the slaves first. Now, I just, you just have to trust me on this. You can go and read some Aristotle if you want to, but I promise you, read as much of what the philosophers of the day wrote. You can look up a guy named Plutarch, a guy named Philo, a guy named Aristotle. None of these men ever once addressed the women, the children, or the slaves. They only speak to the man who was considered to be the ruler of the household. And so Paul automatically, when he begins using the household code and he addresses the wives and the children and the slaves, he is elevating their status in the family of Jesus. He's saying, listen, I'm not just talking to the men that your society tells you are the only important ones, but no, I'm elevating your status as a woman. I'm saying you are my sister in Christ and I will speak to you. My ch children, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ and I will speak to you. You see, already in the language that he uses and the people that he addresses, Paul is being subversive, radically different than the contemporaries who are writing on the same things. As I was reading the, the writings of Aristotle, I just kept thinking about stories that I've heard, very real stories that I've heard from uh, men and women in, in our culture. I remember sitting down and talking with a couple and they were telling me about their experience at a church one time where they walked in and they went to go talk to the pastor together and this male pastor would not even look at the wife. He didn't talk to the wife, he didn't address her. It was almost like she didn't exist, like she wasn't standing there. And I remember sitting at my dinner table with her talking to me about what that felt like for her as a woman, as though she didn't matter, as though she wasn't as important as the man that was being addressed. And I want you to notice that Paul does the exact opposite here. He speaks to the wives first. Now let's look at what he says to the wives because this is what gives a lot of people problems is what he actually instructs them. And so in verse 22, he starts by saying, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now we have to understand that right away, we need to understand that wives are simply being instructed to do the very thing that everyone else has just been instructed to do in verse 21. 
It's fascinating when you read Paul's writing in the language that he was writing in, this word submit doesn't even show up in verse 22. It actually reads more like this. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, here's the, here's the instruction for all of you, for the whole family of Jesus. Submit to each other. Yield your rights to each other. Wives, let me tell you what this looks like in your marriage. You yield your rights. You submit to your husbands. Now, this type of submission is super important. Please hear me on this. He says, submit to your husbands, your own husbands, as you would to the Lord. And this is what's so important about this, is I think we all know, I hope we all know, the type of submission that Jesus requires. You see, this verse has been radically misused and abused to promote a type of marriage environment where this all-powerful husband seems to wield unlimited power over his seemingly weaker and cowering wife, and this is not at all the picture that Paul is painting. No, he says, you submit as you would to the Lord, and the type of submission that Jesus requires is never demanded. It's never forced. It's never from power exerted over someone. But Jesus invites us to voluntarily submit ourselves to him. You know, wives, what Paul is saying to you is he's saying, listen, this submission with your husband, it's this voluntarily lowering of yourself so that your husband can be lifted up and be pushed on to look more and more like Jesus. It's this yielding of rights so that your husband can be lifted up towards the Lord. He says, humble yourself so that your husbands can be lifted. Now, I think some of the confusion in this text comes from what Paul says next. He starts talking about how the husbands are the head of the wives as Christ is the head of the church. And man, I've done lots of reading. There is no shortage of ideas or opinions or explanations on what Paul means here by this word head. And I don't think that, unfortunately, this morning, because we're dealing with such a large text, it's not the place for us to dive in and try to understand exactly what Paul's intentions were with the word head. But here's what's amazing, is that although when you read this text, there are plenty of room for questions and differing opinions on what he intends, Paul leaves no room for question on what it looks like when this type of headship is lived out. Because he goes on from instructing the wives to giving some very, very clear instruction to the husbands. And the instruction that Paul gives to husbands could not be more different than the instructions that his contemporaries were giving to husbands. You see, Paul right away tells us, hey, hey, husbands, if you want to be the head, husbands, if you want to have authority, let me tell you what this looks like. It means you're going to lay down your life for your bride. You are going to yield your rights. You are not out from under this command of submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus. But husbands, you are to lay down your life for your bride, that she may be lifted up to look more and more like Christ, that she may be encouraged. You know, I preach this text at almost every wedding that I officiate. And I feel every time I feel a little bad because I kind of feel like I'm harping on the dudes the whole time. I'm just like, husbands, lay down your your life for your wife. This is the way of Jesus. Lay down your life for your wife. You're entering into a commitment for the rest of your life to be made nothing so that your wife can be made something. Do you understand what you're entering into? And I think many men hear this instruction and they immediately jump to heroic actions or these ideals of, yeah, I would give life and limb for my bride. You know, I would take a bullet for her if I had to. And it's like, this is not exactly what Paul is talking about here. 
You see, we're modeling the life of Jesus, and this laying down of your life is going to look far more commonplace and mundane on the day-to-day of your life with your bride. You know, I learned this early on in marriage with my wife. I thought I was ready. I thought I knew that what it meant to lay down my wife, and then for the first five years of our marriage, my wife dealt with chronic pain in her back and in her hip. She had sacroiliitis, and we didn't know what it was at the time, but it caused a lot of problems with her lower back, and every day she needed me to rub her back. And you know, at the beginning I was like, sure, baby, I'll rub your back, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day, and the pain never went away. And I did not model the love of Jesus at times very well. At times I got frustrated. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to fix it, because I felt like I needed to fix it. And Jesus wasn't saying, Aaron, I want you to fix it. I want you to lay down your life for your bride. And I remember one night it came to a head because at times she would have spats of pain so much that she couldn't even move or walk. And I'll never forget this first year of our marriage, about 2.30 in the morning, Amy wakes me up and she's crying because she just needs to go to the restroom. And she can't get her legs to carry her across the room to the bathroom. And it was in that moment that I realized what Christ was inviting me into. I had to get up and go to her and pick up my wife and carry her to the bathroom so that she could use the restroom. And Jesus got my attention that night. He said, Aaron, this is what I'm calling you to. Will you lay down your wife, your life for your bride? Sorry. <laughs> Will you lay down your life for your bride? Because I promise you at 2.30 in the morning when my wife woke me up in pain, all I really wanted to do was roll over and go back to sleep. He said, nope, you're gonna lay down your life. You're gonna lay down your life. You see, laying down your life, husbands, I'm gonna get this right eventually, laying down your life, husbands, is an everyday act. It's when you've had a long day at work and you come home and all you wanna do is prop your feet up and watch TV and drink a Coke or a beer or whatever you do. It's like, no, you come home and you find out your wife has had a long day, a long day at work, a long day with the kids, and you yield your right to relax and kick back so that you can rub her shoulders, so that you can serve her, so that you can help her, so that you can be a contributing part of yielding your rights. This is what it looks like. This is the picture of marriage that Paul is painting. It is not one of abuse or wielding unlimited power. And I love the way that Paul keeps going because he he helps us understand here that marriage is not just this random relationship that's meant to maintain the stability of society. He goes on to talk about marriage. He says, no, listen, I'm talking about Christ and his church here. He says, there's a reason that marriage is so important to God Almighty because he says in marriage is one of these places where the rest of creation gets to see a picture of what it looks like for two people to lay down their lives for one another. You see, in marriage, we get the opportunity to show the world the radical and submissive love of Jesus. He says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. It's this beautiful, beautiful gift. What would it look like if we as husbands and wives radically sought to lay down our lives for the sake of our spouse? So this is Paul's teaching on marriage. It is this beautiful thing, this elevating picture of what it looks like to love one another. And then he's going to go on and talk to children and parents. And we're not going to spend as much time on this one because I think we've all been around this. We've seen the importance of children that need to obey. We've seen kids that don't obey and how hard that is on parents and those around them. But what I love, again, is that Paul starts by addressing children. He says, hey, children, you, you have a role. You have a place in the family. You have a part to play. And as you are a child in your home with your parents, your place is one of obeying your parents. 
He says, this is the place where you learn about that self-denying, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. He says, you are learning to submit, to yield your rights for the sake of Jesus as a child to your parent. And he says, parents, he says, man, teach your kids how to do this with gentleness and love. Don't be a jerk. Like, love your kids, walk with them, show them and model for them what it looks like to lay down your life. So he deals with the marriage relationship. He deals with parents and children. And then Paul gets to this third relationship, which for us seems so problematic and confusing. He starts talking about slaves and masters. And again, to understand some of what he's writing, we've got to enter into the mind of a first century citizen of the Roman Empire, okay? So we need to understand the culture of slavery in Rome. I I did a lot of reading this week and it was really fascinating. I found this astounding statistics that it is estimated that around 80 to 90% of the inhabitants of Rome were either slaves or had their origin in slavery. So in other words, in a room like this of around 500 people, we'd be looking at 450 of us would either be slaves or had started our lives in slavery and found freedom. That's astonishing. Man, it's a staggering statistic that the vast majority of the people in that culture were deeply connected to slavery. The other thing we have to hear as Americans is that slavery in the Roman Empire was not a racial issue. So we have seen the detriment of systematic racism in our own nation. We have seen how awful and atrocious it is When one group of of human beings will treat another group of human beings uh, totally different and oppressively based upon their skin color or their race, and that is not exactly what was happening here in Rome. You see, in Rome, it wasn't a race issue. Almost anybody could be a slave. It didn't matter what your race was. You could be Middle Eastern, or you could be European, or you could come from Northern Africa. It didn't matter. Anyone could be a slave. It was more of a socioeconomic issue. And while some were born into slavery to parents who were slaves, others entered into slavery as adults because they found themselves indebted to someone else and in an attempt to pay off that debt, they would come underneath the one to whom they were indebted and work as their slave. That's why some of your Bibles, if you have, especially if you have the English Standard Version, you'll find this word bond servant there instead of slave because bond servant well captured much of what slavery was like in the Roman Empire You see, slaves in the first century, they could do almost any trade or skill. They were able to earn money of their own with which they could eventually buy off their own freedom. This was the cultural condition of slavery in Rome. Now, it's so important that we do not ignore texts like this and try to talk through it. We've got to be the ones to have integrity in the way that we approach this and try to get an understanding of what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. Because if we can't talk about this, if we don't talk about it, then we leave the door open for wicked and evil people to come in and twist the words of the Bible to their own advantage for power and authority. And this is not how the word of God was intended to be used. You see, Paul here is not condoning slavery of any kind. In fact, he actually speaks against it in several places in 1 Corinthians 7. He speaks to those that are slaves. He says, hey, if you have opportunity to get your freedom, then get it. If you read his letter to a man named Philemon, he pleads and begs with Philemon for the freedom of Paul's friend Onesimus, who was a slave to Philemon. Paul was not condoning slavery. However, Paul did recognize that a large portion of his readership were slaves or bondservants, 80 to 90%. 
The majority of the people that would have received this letter found themselves in this cultural predicament of living in slavery or as a bond servant. And so he begins to speak to them. And it's really amazing what he says to them. First off, he says, hey, you're my brother or you're my sister in Christ. You are on the same level as I am. We are co-heirs together in the kingdom of God. And that regardless of your predicament now, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you can know the limitless love of Jesus. And he says the Holy Spirit will lead you into embodying this radical love of Jesus so that you too can see what it looks like to submit out of reverence for Christ, not out of fear of your master. And then Paul goes on, what I love is he doesn't just speak to the slaves, he addresses the masters with some very clear and very direct words for them. He says, hey, masters, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that this command of submission applies well to you as well. You are equally commanded to submit yourself out of reverence to Jesus, to those around you. He says, hey, your position before the Father is the same as the position of that that you call your bondservant or your slave, and you better remember that. Because you will stand before him one day and he will look at the way that you treated this person who is his child. And what he expects from you is that you will treat them with kindness, respect, and dignity. And not to abuse the position that society has given you as a slave owner. So you see, Paul was not condoning slavery. He was just speaking to a current predicament that people found themselves in. And I love what he does because he kind of says, hey, listen, if we will just inject the love of Jesus into every single relationship that we find ourselves in, it has the power to radically transform an entire society or empire. So what do we do with this? How do we, what are our takeaways as, you know, modern 21st century readers and we read this and at the front it sounds so offensive. So what do we do with it? Well, I think the the first takeaways are pretty simple. To those of you that are married in the room or those of you that long to be married one day, Paul says this, he says, hey, husbands, lay down your life for your bride. Lay it down. Yield your rights for her sake that she may be lifted up. Wives, those who long to be wives, he would say this to you. He'd say, hey, respect your husbands. Yield your rights for his sake that he may be lifted up to look more and more like Jesus. When we understand the the cultural context, it is not much of a stretch for us to understand the slave and masters in our modern society to understand this as employers and employees. He's saying, listen, some of you are gonna find yourself in a position where you are the boss. Some of you are CEOs and managers and employers. He's going to say to you, hey, be careful how you use this position that society has put you in. You are commanded at the love of Jesus to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus, even in the way that you manage your employees and those that work for you. Some of you may feel like, well, I'm not an employer or a CEO. I don't find myself in that position. Some of you, though, it may just be as simple as you hire someone to mow your yard every week. How are you going to treat that person or those people that show up to do your landscaping? When you go in the grocery store and you're the customer and you are there at the checkout, how are you treating that person that is there to be your servant, to check you out and to bag your groceries? You see, all Paul is saying is that, listen, this radical submission that we step into in the love of Jesus, it trickles down into every nook and cranny of our lives. And we are invited to embody this amazing sacrificial love of Jesus. 
I think there's other things that um, we'll see here as takeaways as well. And this is one of the most beautiful things that hit me with this text that I was not expecting, honestly, is that I think Paul says very clearly, he says, hey, listen, regardless of your specific social situation, through the power of the Spirit, you can be empowered to embody the radical, submissive, sacrificial love of Jesus for others. He said, listen, it doesn't matter if you are married or single, if you're a husband or a wife, if you're wealthy or if you're poor or if you're homeless or you live in a mansion, it doesn't matter what status you find, but you stand before Jesus on a level playing field with everyone else and the Holy Spirit longs to fill you and empower you to live with the kind of love that Jesus lived with. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel. It has the power to free and to infiltrate the heart of any person at any time, in any place, in any position. It shows no favoritism. This is why Paul will write in Galatians that there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek in the family of Jesus, but we are all one before Jesus. The gospel shows no favoritism in how it impacts the human heart. You see, we as Christians are called to fight for and to work for justice and to overthrow oppression where we see it. But man, when we find ourselves on the underside of it, when we find ourselves in the grip of oppression or injustice, even there, we are not out of reach of the Holy Spirit. Even there, the Holy Spirit empowers us to embody the sacrificial love of Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is an amazing truth and amazing reality that we're invited to live into. As we go to communion, I want to give us just some very clear uh, things that we can pray about and things that we can step into with one another in the unity of the body of Christ. The first is this. I, I know because I've had multiple conversations. I mean, just this last week, I've had several. I know that there are some of us in this room who have been wounded or hurt because of the way that these verses have been misused or handled poorly. And what I'd like all of us to do is we come together to the body of Jesus and to the blood of Jesus. I want to invite all of us to come together and I want to invite all of us to pray for healing. Let's pray that the Lord would bring healing to our church family. Let's pray that the Lord would bring healing to his broader church family. And let's pray that the Lord would bring healing to the world around us that has been ravaged by a misunderstanding of what it means to submit. So together, let's pray for healing. Second, I want to encourage those of you who find yourselves in positions of power or authority. So if you are an employer or a boss or a professor or a teacher, as you come to the body this week, I just want to encourage you, ask Jesus, say, Jesus, how do you want me to leverage this position that society has given me? How do I leverage it? Will you fill me with your spirit that I may leverage this in a way that honors and lifts up all those who are around me? And then for those of you who find yourselves in situations where you feel powerless, where you feel like that you are on the underside of it, I just encourage you to come to communion with some brothers and sisters, maybe name that place, because the reality is there is no place where you can hide from the power of the love of Jesus. And let's pray for one another. And if you feel powerless, then ask the Spirit of the Lord to fill you, to keep filling you, to give you everything that you need to live this radical love of Christ. And together, as we pray for one another, together, as we submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus, I believe that this church, our church, Ethos Church, will grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus. And the city around us will come to know the radical, life-changing love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us and send us in to communion with one another.
Father God, I love you so much. Man, I love, Lord, just that you pour out your love on us through your spirit. And that our life circumstances and our life scenarios don't limit us from receiving every bit of grace that you want to pour out on us. That you show no favoritism. Lord, this morning, I pray as we worship, as we commune, would you fill us with your spirit, Lord? Would you pour out your spirit into our presence? Lord, I pray that you would bring, with the presence of your spirit, that you would bring a healing, Lord, that you would heal our hearts in the ways that we have been wounded from the misuse of your word. Lord, I pray that as we gather around your body, that you would give us fresh insight and creative wisdom on how we leverage the positions you've put us in in a way that embodies and shows the love of Jesus to those around us. Lord, would you come and work through us? Lord, would you free us and help us to walk in total freedom in a way that honors you, in a way that seeks to lift up our brothers and sisters? Love you, Lord. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.